Remain standing for the reading of the text this morning, going back to Matthew 5, beginning at verse 38 through 42. Now hear the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Let's pray. Gracious Father, open our eyes to the truth that is here before us. And write it upon our hearts and change us from the core of our very being to be sanctified in this truth. Run the plumb line of your word up against our heart and square us up with that righteousness. And we pray your name would be honored and glorified in pressing upon us the very applications that we as individuals need to hear. Bring this back to our memory as we are confronted with temptations in the opposite character and be glorified that we might be children of your kingdom and living righteously according to this truth. And we pray this for your glory and in your name. Amen. You may be seated. When framing my house, I rely heavily on... Two things, a framing nailer and an air compressor. Neither is any good without the other. And to live the truths that Christ is expounding in this sermon, we need those two things. We need things that go together that cannot be separated in their individual parts. We need to spiritually know God's right teaching in His Word We need to see Christ, and we need to see His character. We need to see really the nature of God behind the law that Christ is expounding. We need to know how to react and what our responses and the conduct of the speech of Christ would be in every situation that we might be changed from glory to glory into His likeness as we see His glory living out in this fallen world. We need clear teaching on who we are and how we are to live. So that's the one part. We need a clear understanding of what this is in this sermon before us. The truth. But we also need to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we have the truth and we have the Spirit. We need the experiential knowledge of Christ according to the Scriptures, but filled with the Spirit that we might be able to obey them. Nail gun, compressor. Neither are good without the other. And the purpose of the passage before us is to correct the wrong view of the law and to exhort us to live like Christ. And particularly the one before us is to live like Christ when we are wronged. Remember the Beatitudes and that last one, blessed is he or blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness sake. This is beginning to explore that in real life circumstances. But one of the best tests we have as Christians that we face is 
That which tests our discipleship with Christ when we are wronged by another person. Because it gets right to the very heart of what is in our heart of hearts. And have we so been changed into Christ? Now there's some general principles that I would like to just go back and rehearse as we approach this entire Sermon on the Mount, not just the passage before. Some general principles here. First of all, Notice and remember that Jesus was not changing the law. He was not abrogating the law or doing away with it. He says, I did not come to change the law. I came to fulfill it. When referencing here the law, secondly, he uses six examples in this passage. And what he is doing in these six examples of showing us And illustrating to us, he is identifying some abuse or misinterpretation or misapplication of the law that was set forth by the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's having to correct that. Third, what appears oftentimes just on the surface must be examined in light of other Scripture, and we need to have Scripture interpret Scripture and use the clearer passages of Scripture to interpret the less clear passage, and not the other way around. So we have to look at other passages and understand what's going on here. Fourth, where other Scripture apparently contradicts what we're reading here, for instance, when we are told that we are not to take oaths, and yet we find other Scriptures that command us to take oaths and vows in God's name, how are we to see this? And this is something where... Two apparently passages of Scripture are apparently contradicting one another, but we know that the Bible does not contradict itself because God does not contradict Himself. So that draws our attention to something beyond and something we need to unpack. Something is going on here more than just on the surface. Now let me go into a couple of specific guidelines, again, to remind us of how we are to approach these passages in the context of this sermon First of all, Jesus is not setting a new ethical teaching for us and how to live any differently than what God did throughout all of the Old Testament passages of Scripture. There's no new ethical teaching or ethical standard here. He's not teaching a new ethic. Secondly, he's illustrating the fact that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And as we're getting in here, we're beginning to see what kind of righteousness he's talking about. A righteousness that we see of the scribes and Pharisees, which was only an external shell according to the letter of the law. But he's saying it has to be greater than that or you can't enter the kingdom of God. The scribes and the Pharisees had an external form of righteousness while ignoring the law. And what Jesus is doing, he's setting forth the spirit of the law here, not the letter. The letter is important, but the spirit is at the heart of it. He's addressing the heart. And that's the part that the scribes and the Pharisees ignored. That's the part that they were not obeying from. And to obey the scripture properly as unto the Lord, it has to be obeyed from the heart with joy, with a motive of love. So what he does here is he takes six examples of where the scribes and the Pharisees have erroneously interpreted and thus believed that they were living in conformity of the law 
when in fact they were doing quite the opposite. Now, six examples after he says, your righteousness, I did not come to change the law but to fulfill it, and your righteousness must exceed that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And then he gives us six examples where they thought they were righteous, but they had completely misunderstood and misinterpreted the Scriptures. He's bringing correction. And so you find six illustrations with some form of a refrain You have heard that it was said of old, but I say to you. Now, he's not changing the original intent of the law, but there is an adverse conjunction there that is saying the things that you have heard is something wrong, but I say to you. He gives us these six illustrations, and let me just run back through them. The first one, you've heard that it is said in verse 21, Thou shalt not kill, but whoever kills shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, the second one is in verse 27, you have heard that it was said of them of old, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, that's true, but it wasn't all there. But I say unto you. The third one is given in verse 31 and 32, it has been said, Whoever shall put away his wife and give her writing unto divorce. But I say to you, and he brings clarity of what the original intent of the law was. Verse 4, or the illustration 4 begins in verse 33. And again, you have heard that it is said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform to the Lord thy oaths. But I say unto you, and the fifth example here where we are looking at last Lord's Day and today, you have heard that it is said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you, do not resist an evil person. Now, the sixth and the last example that we'll cover in a couple of weeks is beginning in verse 43. That will carry us on into the conclusion of this particular chapter and into the beginning of the next. You have heard that it is said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. Now, that actually was not a quote anywhere of the Old Testament. And that gives us a clue that while some were quotes and some were half quotes, this one gives us a clue that what's going on here is not the original intent, sometimes not even the original verbiage. But they have heard it, and they have heard it so much that they have assumed that this was a part of the Torah, and yet it was not. It's not unlike what goes on today when we grow up with certain truths and we hear certain things, uh, even about the Bible, or perhaps you watch a particular movie on the Bible, and you grow up believing what what you've heard and what you have watched is true, but you've never seen it in the Scriptures explained, and so you just assume that. And when someone challenged you, I remember in seminary one time, um, I'm trying to remember the exact example, but I believe I was in class one time, and he says, for instance, have you ever heard that when the priest goes into the holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement, they, they tied a rope around his ankles. And so when he went in, if he ever fell dead, they could pull him back out. You ever heard that? That's nowhere in the Bible. There's no truth in that whatsoever. I went home and I looked. Well, I sure have heard it all my life. 
Well, I sure thought that's what it was about. And that what is true for us today was true for them then, and Jesus had to clarify these things. That's what was going on in this sermon. Now, while some of these are direct quotes from Old Testament law, we have to keep in mind that they are incomplete, or they are taken out of context, or they have been given new meaning, or there are some things that God just has never said. Hate your enemies? It, against, it is against these things that Jesus is bringing back the true meaning of the law. And he addresses the heart and the spirit of the matter, not merely the external behavior. And yet his last example is one that is so skewed, the one that we'll cover in a couple of weeks, it's just not even a quote at all. Now we come to this fifth illustration, and let's unpack what's going on, and we'll have a little bit of repeat from last Lord's Day, but then continuing to unpack all four illustrations The scribes and the Pharisees had wrestled from the Scriptures the original context and the original meaning of the law. And so we come here, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, yes, we have heard that, and we can look at at least three passages in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit and God gave us specifically that instruction. But that directive was given to the magistrates of Israel, and it was not a law for personal or private retaliation. The original purpose of that in its context in the law of the Old Testament was to ensure an equitable punishment would fit the crime. You pluck out my eye the equitable punishment that the magistrates would give would be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You get in a fight and you knock my tooth out, I want to kill you. The magistrate says, no, it's a tooth for a tooth, not a life for a tooth. And it was to restrain evil in many ways, but also to give a fair, equitable, just punishment and not more than what was due. It restricted victims and even magistrates from inflicting more punishment than what was actually due. Inflicting more than was actually due is a spirit of retaliation and a vengeance. But the abuse that crept in in that particular passage over time turned it around from its original intent of the law to suggest the exact opposite. And by the time Jesus comes on the scene, this particular passage, the Jewish leaders had taken that what God had legislated for good, they twisted it into something evil. They were using this as a law of retribution and using it vindictively. People were using this law to retaliate against their enemies. I must repay the perpetrator in like kind in the way I have been afflicted. That's how that would go. You see the slight spin, but the exact opposite meaning is being intended. I must take out my enemy's eye. If he slaps me on my right cheek, I must slap him back in like fashion. And in some cases, these retaliatory laws, as they had become, were even required. But that is not the intent that God had. They were flipping it around. They were giving a different emphasis to it. 
And oftentimes, just taking something and giving a different emphasis to it makes it become an entirely different meaning. Now, Jesus' teaching here goes to the very heart of the law as it is addressing the very spirit in man, not just his external behavior. If the spirit is right, the external behavior comes out appropriately because out of the heart are the issues of life. And the main point that Jesus is speaking about here is not to retaliate when you are done wrong. The spirit of the fallen man likes to do just that. He likes to retaliate. He likes to lash back. He likes to return an injury for an injury. The old natural fallen man likes to lash out at those who hurt us, to energize the pen or the fingers against those who have spoken unrighteously against us. Those are the ways of the unfallen regenerate man. And you remember that the next time you go into Facebook and you have some kind of uh, argument out there and someone's accusing you falsely and then you just go and you want to just get into it with them. You go in exactly the way of the fallen, un, or natural man, unregenerate man. That is not the way of a Christian at all. The law of God, which summarized as loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, teaches us the opposite of this spirit of retaliation. This sense that rises up in us that wants to get the score even, that makes the, the balance sheet square up or even tilt to our favor. But Jesus is teaching a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees apart from which you will not enter the kingdom of God. It is His own righteousness that is cloaking us, but it is the Spirit that is working that very righteousness inwardly to make us to be what Christ has declared us to be. And so what comes out in this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is that righteousness is one that goes deep down into the heart of man and addresses the spirit of man. And here specifically, a Christian is not to lash out in retaliation. He is not to demand wrongs to be righted against him. He is not defending his personal rights. This is not the example that Christ gave when he was unfairly judged and he was lied and false witnesses came against him and he opened not his mouth and he received that which was completely unjust. There is in this teaching a teaching of non-resistance when confronted with someone that is doing you wrong. And we are able to do so only when we're walking in the Spirit according to the truth. A right understanding of the truth, empowered by the Spirit of God. I've got my nail gun, I've got my compressor. And I can go to work. But both of them must work together. It is not something that we retaliate. 
Quite the contrary, we go the extra mile, we give more than we are asked, and we take it on the chin. And we are not to return evil for evil, but we are to overcome evil with good. Our enemies surround us with swords and weapons, and what God calls us to do is to praise Him, to worship Him, to lift up a loud voice to the sound of the glory in the name of God our heaven, in heaven and on earth. And, and all of a sudden, God takes that very unusual and unnatural way and means, and He begins going in our behalf against our enemies. But if you're not getting down to the spirit of the law and you yourself and your own misinterpretation are just receiving either this form or that form of interpretation that only addresses the externality of the law, we're not seeing what Jesus is doing deeper down and we're not seeing the the truth here that must spring from a different kind of person and a heart, the shaping of a character and a completely different bent. So the four illustrations that he supports what he's communicating here. The first one, he addresses our spirits when we are personally insulted. We are to turn the other cheek. Now there it says, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. The majority of mankind is right-handed. Some of us are gifted being left-handed. It is not, as the old medievals call, sinister. As they always, someone, I've always been trained that if the right side of the brain controls the left part of the body, then only left-handed people are in their right mind. Now, the majority of people, and I would say, you know, are right-handed. But you think if you're facing your enemy, the only way you're going to hit him on the right cheek with your right hand is to slap him with your backhand. And that's exactly the the picture that Jesus is showing here. He's not talking about a fist fight here. He's talking about the highest form of an insult that you can give and one that would cause any man on the other side of that, naturally speaking, to rise up in his spirit. I dare say there have been many a fist fight started with the backhand or the slap of the glove upon the cheek of someone standing opposite is the insult of the highest form. Now, as you consider that, it was a direct challenge that would have stirred up everything in your spirit. And now the scribes and the Pharisees' interpretation would have you to respond in a like kind. And that is not exact, that is not at all what the law would have us to do, and that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, do not retaliate. Someone slaps you on the cheek with the back can, turn to him the other also. Don't even take this person to court, because in that day, it was a, a legal offense for you to be insulted that way. If you went to court, if you were awarded the case, you could exact a very heavy fine upon your insulter, sometimes that would exceed the annual wages of his income. No, you don't even do that. You turn the other cheek. Now, we're not dealing with a life-threatening situation here. 
If we were, I don't believe the Scripture requires us to necessarily defend ourselves. There are some people that say that we are required by the law of God to necessarily defend ourselves if we are confronted. I do not believe that the Scripture takes that perspective. I don't think you're going to find that. I don't think you're going to find that in the life of Christ. I don't think you're going to find it in the life of Paul. I don't think you're going to find it in Polycarp or others who were willing to die a martyr. But the Scriptures also neither forbid it here, and that's the point. In fact, our larger catechism helps us to understand when it talks about the duties required in the Sixth Commandment, says they are all careful studies of lawful endeavors to preserve the life and ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away of life of any by just defense thereof against violence. And it goes on. So there is a just way in which you can defend yourself when your life is threatened. In fact, Psalm 82, 3 says, defend the poor and the fatherless. And while the scriptures do speak about just defense of one's person, it does not always require it. And this passage is not teaching against such defense. That's not what this is about. Walking in the Spirit and knowing God's wisdom for every situation leads us to know when to defend our lives and when to die as a martyr. But here it's speaking about the spirit of the law that should not even rise up to lash out in retaliation against the greatest insult you may occur, accrue. And that's what this is teaching us. The second illustration here in teaching us overcoming evil with good is given us regarding our personal belongings. In verse 40, it says, If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Now, it's not commending that we yield to our opponents whatever they demand or that we should go around naked. Because that's exactly what would happen if that were taken absolutely literally. This is in the context of lawsuits. If a person lays claim against us in the court of law and attempts to use the law to his advantage to turn upon us and get everything he can, rather than contend with him in a vengeful spirit in the courts of justice, we're just to take the injury. We're to take the injury, the injustice. There are two garments that are here mentioned. There was an inner garment called the, the coat or the tunic, and there was an outer garment which is normally longer and worn over, and that was the cloak. The cloak was the more expensive garment, and that's the garment that was valued more so because, remember in the Old Testament law, if, if a poor man came and he were to give his cloak as a guarantee for a loan, you could not keep that overnight. You had to give it to him before nightfall because that same cloak was often used as his blanket for night and sleeping. It was the more valuable garment. But if someone comes and takes away your inner garment, he says, give him the more valuable one also. In other words, what Jesus is commending here is not for people to go naked. That's missing the point. That's the literal letter that can mislead you into a wrong interpretation. He is getting at we are not to exact everything from our neighbor or defend everything, but in fact we must recognize that God owns everything 
And we're not going to contend with our neighbor in this way. When our wealth and our finances, our personal belongings are threatened, we must defer to the one who owns it all and just take the wrong. It's exactly what Paul was saying to the Corinthians who were dividing over and taking their brother to the court on lawsuits in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, now therefore it is already an utter failure that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept the wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? I remember when my kids were growing up and perhaps maybe... You've noticed this too in your home. You give one of your children a toy and another child takes the toy and accidentally breaks it to the chagrin of its owner. And in the process of all of the reaction and drama that follows, they had forgotten all of the point that I had given the toy to begin with And if I gave it the first time, I certainly could replace it the second. And if you ever want to get a good picture of our human depravity regarding our personal belongings, just go be a nursery worker in a toddler's nursery sometime. Or raise a couple of toddlers. And you will find World War III just breaking out about three or four times in a given hour. Over things. And yet we're just like that. I got my thing. Because I like my thing, it attracts somebody else to my thing who will come and take it by force and go away screaming and yelling. I I just have illustrations going through my mind of my own home as well as working in a nursery when I was. and And you just look, that's me. That's you. That's the natural man. But when it comes to someone who desires to take advantage of you or someone you feel is doing you wrong, cheating you, not acting honestly with you, demanding things that are yours, remember that God sees it all, He knows it all, and don't go to battle over these things because He owns it all. Instead, rather take the high road and provide even more than what was asked. Oh, you want this toy? Here, have have this one too. God will see it. He will reward you accordingly. Now, the third illustration is addressing our spirit regarding personal oppression and even suppressing our personal liberties. I know I'm preaching to Americans. Americans who have grown up in a culture of our personal rights. Americans which want to stand upon the flag of liberty and give me liberty or give me death. And now I'm confronting you American Christians in a way that can rub you the wrong way and go against the grain of every way in which you were raised. Verse 41, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Now you understand the context. This would be well understood by those Jews in the Roman world in which they lived. The Romans then occupied Palestine and they exercised the right to commandeer any of the subjected Jews to do what needed to be done. You see this with Simon of Cyrene, who a Roman soldier compelled Simon there to carry Jesus' cross with him. That was not mere voluntarism. That was commandeering by a Roman soldier to do so. 
It was well understood in their day. And according to their own law, a Roman soldier could arbitrarily force one of the subjugated people to go a mile in carrying a load or relaying a message. Now, the Romans used a unit of distance called a mile passum, which is literally translated to a thousand paces. And since each pace in their world was considered five Roman feet, and their feet were shorter than ours, a mile ended up being 5,000 Roman feet, or roughly 4,850 of our modern feet. And if you have a foot like mine, it's right at a foot long. It was their custom then that Jesus is referring. And so if a Roman soldier came upon you as a Jew in that day and compelled you to go one of those Roman miles, then the point is you don't stand upon your personal rights and fight against that. You don't be a minimalist with it. You go with him too. It was not required for you to go to. But that's what's being commended. The scribes and the Pharisees taught that the Jews were not to be pressed by others' might that way, by the king's officers, to travel upon public service. But Christ will not have his disciples insisting upon that privilege. But to comply rather than to offend the government. In other words, Christians are not to insist upon every one of their personal rights. It's not the character. It's not our posture. It's not our focus. There are some Christians today that are all about their personal rights and making a whole ministry of their personal rights, making it the focus and the emphasis of their life. And Christ says, that's not what I'm telling you here. That's being like a scribe in the Pharisee. Even against unrighteous, heavy-handed, oppressive government... Go the extra mile. Now the fourth illustration, he addresses a spirit of charity. Verse 42, given to him who asks and from him who wants to borrow from him, do not turn away. Now it's it's good for us to understand that it was not an obligation, neither was it a law or a legal duty to give in that fashion. But what Jesus is showing them, that the law not only restrains evil, but it also is a means to promote a lifestyle of grace and charity that is the opposite of the forbidden sin. It's a hermeneutic that we all need to understand even when we think about the law of God. Whatever is prohibited The opposite is commanded. And whatever is commanded, the opposite is prohibited. So when we come to thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder, it is not merely a prohibition against murder, but the opposite is also inherently commanded. You shall promote life. You shall promote the good of others. Honor your father and mother. That is a positive command. But the opposite is prohibited. See? And that's a principle throughout all of Scripture that the Scripture shows us how to interpret the law. And that's what Jesus is doing here as well. This is what Paul would later teach in contrast with the flesh and the spirit. 
the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5 disqualify us from the kingdom of God because they breach the law of God. But there is no such law against the fruit of the Spirit, which are grace, that is the opposite of what the law forbids. The law that Jesus is revealing goes to the very point of not merely forbidding behavior on the outside man. It addresses the inward love and the abundance of charity that should flow out of our hearts, expressing itself in sacrificial giving and service. See, this is the life of the kingdom. Jesus is actually telling us throughout this entire sermon something that is absolutely impossible for the natural man to achieve, to obey, to follow. But it is absolutely imperative that his people do. And what's the difference? Because his people have been given the Spirit of God, they become a new creature in Christ have been given a new heart and a new bent, and now have a desire to live righteously, not to themselves, but into the glory of God. And there's a whole new perspective, a new worldview, a new power within them called the Spirit of God that promotes in them, that gives to them, and empowers them to live in this very unnatural way, this supernatural righteousness. We are not ones that are given to anger. Our hearts are pure and not given over to lusts. We are committed to our spouses. Our word is true and honest, and our lives are characterized by integrity. We yield ourselves to others in love and charity, and where sin of others has abounded, Our grace to them does much more abound. Those are the illustrations that we've covered so far in the law of God. It is overcoming evil with good. That is the characteristic of the Christian life. And there's great joy in that, people. There is great joy. I don't know of anyone here, I don't know of anyone who has ever been satisfied with joy when they have executed vengeance upon those who have wronged them. Not joy. Something has satisfied their flesh, but only for a moment, but not joy. But there's great joy when you can turn the other cheek. There's great joy when you don't have to exert your rights. And that you see God working in your behalf quite in spite of you turning your other cheek. And now God then comes and intercedes for you in great miraculous ways. As we give ourselves to praise and to the glory of worship and the very things that we fear in the surrounding armies that surround our home and our church are destroyed before our faces that it takes us three days to go glean all of the spoil from the battle How great is our God. He not only wants us to win the battles His way, He wants us to glean all of the goods. He not only wants to lead us into a land, He wants to lead us into a land flowing with milk and honey of which our hands have not labored to plant those vineyards or our servants have had to hire to 
build those cities. He's going to give us all of the spoil if we win the battle His way, trusting in Him to defeat our enemies, but giving ourselves over to good in overcoming evil. And there's great joy in that. There's great joy. For the joy set before Him, Christ endured the shameful, dreadful, heinous cross and was obedient unto death. Endured that for the sake of joy. May God grant that we live like Christ, that we not assert our rights in every case, that we not retaliate against our neighbor, that we understand God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he owns everything in your pocketbook and in your backyard. Whatever's taken away from you, he can give tenfold over. If your family is taken away from you, he can give a hundredfold brothers, sisters, mothers, and see. May God grant that we live like Christ in all of these matters, down in our heart, down in our spirit, so that the law of love comes out of that and cloaks everything that we do with the fragrance of Christ. May we continue to grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may he be pleased in how we respond to these matters this week. Our gracious Father, what you have told us here is clarity of the truth. And we pray your spirit would empower these things, that we would live them appropriately and righteously in the world, in the context that we live. And we pray that you would be pleased and glorified in bringing forth much joy in our lives as we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, looking unto our great God to make all things right. Lord, we pray that in this way you would win many battles in our lives, bring many souls to glory, and give us a great satisfaction that we glorify our God in living this supernatural way empowered by your Spirit. So be glorified this week in how we are tested in these matters. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.